EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by SQM. SQM monitors its lithium production with a science-based, extensive and robust environmental monitoring system. Historic and current measurement data are transparently available at www.sqmsnlinear.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I think there is one message that we can take away today. Europe's future is yet unwritten, and our story depends on you, on all of us. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico Europe in Brussels, coming to you in another momentous week for Europe. In the latest sign of how Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues to transform the continent, Finland's President and Prime Minister announced on Thursday that they wanted their country to join NATO. We'll talk more about that next week when we expect to have heard from Sweden as well on NATO membership. Meanwhile, you just heard the voice of the European Parliament President, Roberta Metsola. She was speaking at a ceremony in Strasbourg to wrap up the Conference on the Future of Europe a year-long series of debates and discussions intended to come up with ideas to reshape the political contours of the continent. We've had a flurry of ideas lately about how to revamp the European Union and Europe more broadly. French President Emmanuel Macron threw in some of his own at that ceremony in Strasbourg. Je qualifierai aujourd'hui devant vous une communauté politique européenne. These debates can sound pretty abstract, but ultimately they're about power. How much the EU should have, who should have more of it at the EU level, and how much should stay with national governments. And they're about democracy. Who belongs in Europe? Who controls the political process? How much say do Europeans have in how their continent is run? So, while the biggest battle in Europe's future is undoubtedly taking place in Ukraine right now, it's also worth looking at these proposals and assessing their chances of success. It's a debate that Ukraine itself will be following as it pushes its bid for EU membership. And we'll get into all of that in just a moment. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from our reporter Lily Bayer on what Ukrainian leaders have been telling members of parliament from EU countries who recently visited Kiev. We'll hear about the state of the war, what those leaders want from their allies, 
and about that EU membership bid. But first, let's talk about those big plans to shake up European politics with our podcast panel of political reporters. Joining us this week, Maya de la Baum, who was at that ceremony in Strasbourg. Hi, Maya. Hi, Andrew. Hans von der Burchardt in Berlin. Hi, Hans. Moin. And also in Berlin, Chief Europe Correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Now, before we dive into the discussion, I'm going to try and give a super short summary of what's happened lately. So, the Conference on the Future of Europe was billed as a kind of grassroots effort to come up with big ideas. It involved various panels of citizens, as well as input from numerous politicians. And there was no shortage of spectacle as it wrapped up on Monday. We had young people performing contemporary dance in the aisles of the European Parliament chamber. Suspend ton mouvement. Regarde tes mains et amène-les devant There was music from a young orchestra. There was a giant video screen and there was much speechifying. There are issues that simply cannot wait. You know when in 2019 the idea floated of this conference, the world was a very different place. The conference itself came up with what it calls 49 proposals, which are actually broad headings covering everything from climate to health, containing a total of more than 300 proposed measures. It's impossible to describe all of them, but I would say the general flavour was of more power at the EU level. There's talk of joint armed forces, ditching national vetoes, letting voters choose from pan-European lists of candidates in European Parliament elections and of amending the treaties that underpin the EU. Now, this is all far too federalist for some. Various right-wing and far-right parties have dismissed the conference and questioned how the people involved were selected. And a group of more than a dozen EU governments, generally countries from Northern and Eastern Europe, have quickly made clear they're not huge fans of the conference proposals. Now, enter Emmanuel Macron. J'ai une mauvaise nouvelle pour vous. Je vais faire un discours. The recently re-elected French president gave an address to the closing ceremony, generally welcoming the results of the conference, but also proposing the creation of what he called a new European political community. Je qualifierai aujourd'hui devant vous une communauté politique européenne. Something that would be open to EU and non-EU members and would be a kind of link between them. He didn't give much detail about how this would be different from various other organisations and the arrangements the EU already has with non-members, but he suggested it would be a way for countries like Ukraine to come closer to the EU more quickly. He said it would probably take decades for Ukraine to join the EU, even if it gets candidate status soon. So, that's a very short, imperfect summary of some recent ideas. Without even mentioning Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi's call for pragmatic federalism and various other proposals that have been floating around. Maya, let's start with you. You went to one of these citizens' panels. Tell us what that was like. So back in January, when I went to Natoline next to Warsaw, where the conference was organised, it looked a little bit like a 
like a school trip for some citizens who could take a few days off. And so it was interesting to, you know, explore because a lot of these citizens had no knowledge of what the EU was. A lot of them were sort of very open-minded and were happy to discuss about, you know, the big changes on climate, on health. But it's clear that they were not really sort of, I mean, they're not experts in EU constitutional law. So it, to me, it was clear that it was something difficult and a challenge to organize. But in the end, I think it was quite a fun thing for them to do because also they met people, you know, they were, a lot of them made friends with other nationalities and they, in the end, they took that very seriously. I mean, my impression was that they were very focused and very hardworking and from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. they would uh, go into these classrooms in small groups of seven, eight people and start, you know, talking about very specific uh, issues on climate change, for instance, and they would give their opinions. And then, you know, uh, then days after days, they would start defining what was important to them. And then they would turn this into real proposals with the help of, you know, moderators and a lot of people who were there to help them. So it was quite an organization, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds like it. And as we said, these mini conferences have been taking place throughout Europe uh, over the past year, culminating in this big event this week. And one of the headlines from that event was Emmanuel Macron's speech, where he proposed uh, this idea of a European political community. That was the big idea, but it was a bit short on detail. And then he went off to Berlin, Hans, in keeping with tradition, his first foreign visit since re-election, was to Germany to see Chancellor Olaf Scholz. So what did Scholz make of all these proposals? We have the conference, we have Macron, all sorts of ideas floating around. How did Scholz react to them and what's been the broader German political reaction? Well, there was a twofold reaction from Scholz. Well, first of all, he said it's a very interesting proposal. Sagen, dass das eine sehr interessanter Vorschlag ist mit der großen Herausforderung umzugehen, die wir haben. Uh, something that we should definitely look into and um, see so was in general welcoming. But then he also talked about enlargement, especially enlargement in the Western Balkans. And he said very clearly that any sort of proposals like this one should not stop us from having those countries that already made quite a lot of effort. He talked there about uh, especially Albania and Northern Macedonia, that they could still become regular members of the EU and not get uh, involved of something that uh, Macron uh, proposed. And uh, there's a broader warning, of course, from Germany, especially in the Western Balkans, that this region should not be left uh, over to uh, Russian or Chinese influence, that the EU must really do something there. Right, I think, and there's obviously quite a bit of suspicion that this is intended as a bit of an enlargement killer. As we know, France has been uh, for quite a long time uh, sceptical about EU enlargement, not as enthusiastic as Germany and some other countries, at least in terms of their governments. And there is a suspicion, I think we've seen it already, that this would be a kind of parking bay for countries that uh, some would rather not see inside the EU and they would have to be content with this political community instead. And that would include Ukraine, at least for now. Matt, um, you've been following this issue closely of uh, Ukraine's EU membership bid. How do you think this will go down in, in Kiev, in Ukraine? Is it EU membership or nothing as far as they're concerned? I think so. We spoke to a Ukrainian delegation here this week in Berlin, and I think they were not particularly 
excited about these proposals from the French, and I don't think many Europeans were either, to be honest. I, I think that this Macron proposal is what the Germans call a roi something that's just going to die in the pipe, and it's not going to go any further. I suspect a couple of months from now, as soon as the French uh, give up the presidency, we're not going to hear another word about this proposal. Keep in mind that there are other pan-European organizations that are not part of the EU. If you think about the OSCE or the Council of Europe. Is it the Council of Europe? Yeah, or well is it done. The European Council of Europe. Council? It's always hard to keep, you know, your <laughs> European, you need to know your European councils from your Council of the EU from your Council of Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, I think if you look back at this past week, the only thing anybody is really going to remember, mockery or not, is that bizarre display in the chamber of the European Parliament. And I think it's just a reminder that try as it might, the people in Brussels and Strasbourg have this uncanny knack of shooting themselves in the foot when they have the opportunity to do something on the big stage. You know, they start dancing in the aisles. <laughs> and, uh, well, I think, you, you know, know, that's maybe I, not I, a bad motto for life, you, you know, go. when you've got the big stage dance. Uh, Hans, you, I believe, you know, I think you've studied Franco-German, uh, you know, relations quite closely. Obviously, you know, this was Macron's um, first visit since his re-election. You know, how do you assess the state of Franco-German relations? And do you think, I mean, to make it much more concrete, you know, are they going to make another big push forward? Where might we see progress um, or where might we see division between the two? Well, first of all, there are a couple of things where they're really pulling in the same direction. They want uh, both progress on uh, the Fit for 55. That's this big climate program now that the EU needs to advance. Before, the French have been a bit more hesitant, especially also because of the presidential election. But now in Berlin, Macron really made clear that he also wants to uh, advance there. That's something where the Germans also push in quite a lot. Then they want to cooperate closer in a number of areas such as uh, defense, even though that has been uh, very difficult. And there is or there has actually been on Monday has also been some talk about broader EU reforms. Uh, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz always says that if we talk about any enlargement, including on the Western Balkans, this needs to go hand in hand with uh, reforms of the EU. They talk about this idea that maybe in certain areas we need no longer to vote uh, in unanimity. We could shift over to a qualified majority vote. But the reception on that point from Macron was a bit colder, coldish. Uh, he said, yes, well, in general, we like the idea, but there are also questions of sovereignty of the state where we cannot abandon the unanimity. And I think he was very clearly referring to foreign policy, for example. And we see these days that uh, foreign policy, again, it's very difficult in the EU already with 27 countries that, for example, a new sanctions package against Russia can't be adopted because one or two countries like uh, Hungary have concerns. So, But what was also very interesting is on this uh, point of Ukraine, because we talked about it, Macron, I think, quite rightly pointed out that if Ukraine now uh, wanted to apply for membership, it would take years, he said, even decades for them to get in. I think in, in, in close to discussion, sometimes they, they bring up uh, what I hear, this example of Turkey. I, mean, I don't know for how many years they're already a membership candidate. Obviously, Turkey has moved away quite a lot. Ukraine might go faster there. But still, there is this recognition in Berlin and Paris that it's not something that Ukraine could apply now and in five years they're in. So there, there are a lot of areas where the Franco-German relation can work well and a lot of areas where it actually doesn't. So it remains to be seen what they can make out of that. I would just say from a Ukrainian perspective, I think they would look at 
just the past couple of months and say it was only a few weeks ago that the Germans wouldn't even mention the possibility of joining the EU for Ukraine or becoming a candidate. And now they're openly discussing it, even if they're trying to pour a bit of cold water on it, as Annalena Baerbock did this week during her visit to Kiev, pointing out that there would be no shortcuts. That said, we are facing a dynamic, I think, with Ukraine that is very fluid. So I think that you do need to give Ukraine the feeling that they're going to be taken seriously, that they have a future in the EU. And I think it is also for a population that is now facing, you know, this dire situation, it gives them, you know, the kind of hope that they haven't had up to now. Mm. Uh, Maya, just finally, your perspective, you and Hans uh, together wrote a piece about um, Franco-German relations ahead of uh, Macron's trip to Berlin. How do you think it's seen from uh, Paris? I think from Paris, it's seen as continuity more than revolution, I would say. It's more the Franco-German relationship will go on uh, in the next five years as it went in the past years. Probably Schultz will have to get used to Macron's technique, you know, of throwing big ideas at Europe and then trying to sort of spend months to explain what the contours of these ideas are, because this is what probably will happen more and more. But I think, I also think, and I feel like the French also want to diversify their, you know, relationships in Europe more and more. And I, even if the German, Franco-German one is important, I think there will be even more collaboration with other countries, uh, you know, including Italy with Draghi, who's very close to Macron. So I think it won't exclude other partnerships, but clearly this one, the Franco-German one, is is still very strong. Any final thoughts, anyone? Well, I have I have I have many thoughts, but um, <laughs> yeah, just try and keep it to one or two. I mean, I, I guess looking back at this week, I would wonder what is the big thought to come out of France? Yeah. Macron is known for having these grandiose ideas, but it seemed this week he was the one maybe who was pushing on the brakes a little bit in the guise of making seemingly progressive suggestions such as this European community idea, which is not the kind of sort of grand European unity project most people have had in mind. And the same thing on what Hans was talking about earlier with qualified majority voting and having all of the usual exceptions that we've heard in the past when it comes to France and its nuclear arsenal, of course, and foreign policy and so forth, which is understandable, but you can't have it both ways. And I think that that tension is definitely going to remain. And I wonder if Macron is already kind of squandering the advantage that he had over Germany in this dynamic of having a fairly weak chancellor in Berlin after Merkel's departure. He doesn't really seem to be rising to the occasion so far. Yeah, I was also surprised that we didn't actually get more in the way of concrete ideas from Macron of things that he actually wanted to prioritise in advance. It was all quite uh, vague. And I know that Maya has been uh, trying to get more detail this week on, on some of these Macron plans or ideas, and there doesn't seem to be a huge amount at this stage. And I think it was um, surprising that he had this big platform to seize the initiative and, and doesn't seem to have done so. So 
Perhaps we'll have to have another conference on the future of Europe and then another conference on the conference on the future of Europe. For now, Maya, Hans, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Coming up after this short message, you'll hear from Ukrainian officials in Kiev about the support they want from the EU and others to fend off Russia's attack and rebuild their country. And you'll hear from the EU's ambassador to Ukraine. Stay with us. A message from SQM. SQM is an environmentally conscious lithium production company operating globally. Through a combination of data tracking and monitoring, as well as input from our team of highly skilled scientists and geologists, we can measure our impact on the local environment and community. SQM is committed to high social and environmental performance and is the second lithium mining company that started an independent third-party audit against the IRMA standard. We are confident our operations will comply with ESG standards and due diligence requirements the EU is contemplating regarding the supply chain for sustainable batteries. Our lithium supply helps to develop electromobility. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So I'm joined now by our reporter, Lily Byer, who's recently back from a trip to Kiev. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So, Lily, maybe just start. We'll talk in a moment about uh, your impressions from the trip and who you spoke to. Uh, but first, just perhaps explain the trip itself. Uh, who did you travel with? What was the purpose of the trip? So the trip was organized by a Bratislava-based think tank called Globsec, and it involved a group of think tankers as well as members of national parliaments from Austria, Belgium, Poland and the Czech Republic traveling to Kiev um, along with a small group of reporters. Okay, and what was the purpose of the trip and who were the main people that uh, you and they met with? So the trip was designed as a sort of fact-finding mission. So we arrived in the Ukrainian capital where we met with various officials, both local and national. These included Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko. It included a group of members of the Ukrainian parliament, as well as members of the Ukrainian government. Uh, we also traveled to the suburbs, which had previously been occupied by Russian forces, where we talked to local officials and actually saw firsthand the destruction, destroyed buildings, stores left by the Russian military. And you know Kiev a bit. You visited before the war. You know, what were your overall impressions of this trip? What struck you most about being there right now? 
I was really struck by the contrast between locals who appeared to be trying to go back to their normal lives. So, for example, there were kids playing in playgrounds in Kiev. Um, I saw people sitting outside in cafes enjoying the sunshine. But at the same time, especially in the area we visited uh, where there are a lot of government buildings. We saw a lot of checkpoints guarded by soldiers, a lot of sandbags protecting the windows of government buildings and other sensitive infrastructure. So you could really feel the war in the streets. At the same time, while we were there, there were several air raid alarms. So, you know, you could even hear the war in the street. Mm. And does Kiev have a character? Some some cities, I think, have a certain kind of character. Does it have a kind of character? Did you feel that on previous visits? And how much of that character is there at the moment? So when I was there previously, there was definitely a buzz. I remember spending a lot of time with young Ukrainians in their 20s who had big dreams, would, you know, go out uh, to, to bars and cafes and talk a lot about European integration and the modernization of Ukraine. Um, this time around, you could still feel the buzz, but it was a bit less so. There are definitely fewer people in the capital, so you see fewer people in the streets. And also there's a curfew. So when we were driving around one night after the curfew, with permission, I should say, you could really see that the streets were completely deserted. Um, so that's quite a big contrast to you know, when I spent time there, you know, going out to bars at night. And there was a, quite a vibrant nightlife in Kiev before. Right. So still a kind of wartime uh, mentality and feel understandably, even though that kind of direct threat of Russian forces at the gates of the city has gone for now. Someone else who you met with is the EU ambassador to Ukraine. Tell us a bit about him. And I guess he's just getting back to something more like his normal job, right? Because he wasn't in Kiev for a while. Yes, yeah, so uh, Mati Masikas, the EU ambassador, recently returned. There has been a sort of wave of senior diplomats who are reopening some of the embassies in town, but their lives have changed with the war. You, you could feel it in the way they have to arrange meetings a lot more carefully. There's obviously more security arrangements around the movement of diplomats, and obviously their role has changed. So the European Union is now expected to take a leading role in coordinating Ukraine's recovery, which of course brings with it a lot of um, new challenges and tasks for European officials in the city. Right. And it's an interesting uh, topic which you wrote about. We'll include a link to this uh, story in our show notes. But it does seem to me like one of the challenges for Ukraine and for the European Union and others trying to help Ukrainian officials is, on the one hand, they're still very much at war. There is a fight going on with Russian forces at the moment. It's mainly in the east. But at the same time, they are also trying to recover from the attacks that have taken place already and rebuild, reconstruct for the long term. And, you know, in some ways, these are two very different tasks, you know, require very different mindsets. How does the EU fit into all of that? What's the ambassador trying to do to help with it? How much do we know at this stage about how much they can do? So the European Commission has been floating some ideas of what they can do in terms of financing and reconstruction, but I think there are more unanswered questions than answers at this stage, in large part because, of course, the war is still going on, the fighting is still going on, parts of the country are under occupation, so... 
it's really impossible to tell what the extent of the damage will end up being. I think President Vladimir Zelensky has spoken about hundreds of billions that will be needed for the reconstruction, but that's just you know a rough estimate at this stage. I think there's already talk about uh, budget support, which the, the EU is actually already providing, but Ukraine will need more. They have a major liquidity problem, and I think both the US and the EU are helping with that. But the broader question really will be what one official referred to as the big recovery. So once the war is over, we don't know when, we don't know what that will look like, reconstructing Ukraine's economy and rebuilding the areas which have seen a lot of the fighting. Right. And as you say, you know, big questions. It's really impossible to know at this stage how much that's going to cost. And of course, there's always the question where the money is, is going to come from. So I think those, you know, very much remain to be seen. Somebody else you met with, somebody pretty uh, well known, the mayor of Kiev, former champion boxer, of course, Vitaly Klitschko. And what were your impressions of him and what was his main message? He is quite a character, I must say. You, you have to look up in order to talk to him. He was uh, very blunt in saying that he feels the city is not completely safe yet, which I found a bit surprising because when you see some locals around the streets, you do get the sense, as I mentioned, that they are trying to return to their normal lives. But what the mayor was saying was that there is still a threat to the city in terms of rockets, for example. Um, he also said that there are challenges with infrastructure in the region around Kiev and that the trip coming back to the city is itself risky for residents who may want to come back. So he's still advising people who are outside the country and maybe have a safe place to stay to you know, hold off on coming back. But he did acknowledge that many people are already coming back, and you can feel that in the city. But beyond discussing the immediate challenges on the ground, the mayor also talked about Ukraine's European aspirations. We showed uh, we Ukrainian is actually a European country with our history, with our mentality. Uh, geographically, we are European. We need the help to implement the European. Uh, standards of life in our country will be automatically European. We are actually European and right now we're showing we are fighting for European values and ready to give the, our life for that. And uh, So you also met with a number of uh, other Ukrainian officials, uh, I think at least one senior member of the parliament, a senior member of the government. Who were they and what did they have to say about the kind of support they're getting from, from the West, from Europe at the moment? and also in terms of what more they need and feel that they want. What many officials were emphasizing is that they have lists of weapons that they really need on the front lines and that they're asking their Western partners to provide as soon as possible. One of these officials is the current chair of the Parliamentary Committee on Integration to the European Union, Ivana Klimpush-Tsintsadze. We need everything starting from fighter jets, mm -hmm. uh, from air defense of long to mid to long range show we need tanks we need artillery systems multiple launch rocket systems we need uh, a personal gear mm -hmm. because unfortunately russia has a lot and they are um using all their power i don't want to say might mm -hmm. don't use the word might because mm -hmm. it's too much of an honor for those barbarians in order to destroy us so we 
cannot do this barehandedly. Mm -hmm. So that's everything what we need. Yeah. That's one thing. Whether we are satisfied, it's definitely coming in a much bigger numbers right mm -hmm. now and much faster mm -hmm. uh, than at the beginning, mm -hmm. obviously. Are you uh, still disappointed? Still, or? Uh, it's not about disappointment. It's about encouragement to do more and as urgently as possible. Okay. Thank, Thank you so much. So coming back from Kiev to Brussels, you know, in some ways those are, are two kind of different worlds. How much do you think they're on the same page at the moment as you're talking? You know, how big is that contrast when you arrive back here? And how big is the contrast between the way that officials and politicians are, are talking in Ukraine and the way they're talking in, in Brussels, even though I know that's a very broad spectrum of people? I think to me, the very big difference is that when you talk to Ukrainian officials, they don't really talk about how Russia is going to respond to certain things. So they don't talk about fears about how Moscow would respond to more sanctions or more weapons. To them, I think there is no concern about further escalation. They feel like the escalation is already here and it's existential. Whereas when you talk to Brussels officials, sometimes you feel that they're calibrating a bit their words and their plans. Right. And I guess both of those points of view can make sense when you think about everything that they've got to consider. But I imagine to some extent that's quite frustrating for the Ukrainian officials that you met sometimes, right? Yes, they seemed relatively happy with the current level of Western support, though, of course, they think the West should be doing even more on weapons and sanctions. And one interesting tidbit that I picked up was it seems like some Ukrainian officials daydream about a breakup of the Russian Federation. Well, to be continued. Uh, Lily, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks to Lily for bringing us those voices and impressions from Ukraine. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you like the show, please click some stars and leave a review. We're also always happy to hear from you directly. We read all the feedback and try to reply to all of it too. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Special thanks this week to executive producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.